What's going on, party people? I am your host, Stephen Bagel, and this is Sports Ethos' very own The Bird Rights Podcast. With me today, we have a very special guest, Jake Fisher from Bleacher Report. Jake, how are we doing today? Doing well. How are you? Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah, of course. Again, thanks for coming on. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Jake, which I can't imagine you are at this point, he's one of the biggest up-and-coming, if not the biggest, in the NBA landscape recently. He recently was one of the first people to know that C.J. McCollum or report that C.J. McCollum was going to go to the Pelicans, along with him and Mark Stein. And yeah, Jake is the author of a new book that came out in May called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Has Changed the Landscape of the League. And I just wanted to have Jake on because, as you guys know, we do mostly front office stuff here, but we haven't really got into the aspect of tanking a whole lot. extension his trade value is not there and when you hear reports been paid 16 million dollars of his 33 million dollar salary i know about people that have certain clauses what in their happens contract. next year with Giannis Antetokounmpo? he will be eligible for a supermax next summer if he resigns a new reality is the players are going to move around and the players are, are, are not going to want to spend their whole you know life and because they didn't want to go into the penalty of the luxury tax they traded james hart somebody's going to be making 50 million dollars a year he probably could have made a little bit more money this summer in free I agency. I think he could have got a lot more in the offseason. You got a chance to secure the bag. You got to No question. So I brought on Jake to, you know, bring on a different perspective. As you guys know, I am a Sixers fan, so this book obviously intrigued me. So Jake, my first question I have is, I, I knew you grew up as a Sixers fan. Is that correct? I did. I don't like to publicly admit that too, too much, but I will I will give you that one today. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Jake grew up a Sixers fan. Again, he doesn't really publicize that. So was that really <laughs> your inspiration for the book or was just because this is the golden era of tanking in the NBA? I mean, what, what made you come up with this idea of, okay, let me interview 300 people and write a book about tanking? <laughs> I did interview 300 people, and that's a big selling point. And they, I, I, I have learned and been taught during my media tours that you gotta, you gotta make your pitch early. So the, the original reporting that is in there um, is really the best um, thing about it, honestly. And unlike my work week to week with Bleacher Report, um, being the sensitivity of the stuff we talk about on a day to day, week to week basis, there, everything in the book happened, you know, five, six, seven years ago. So there's a lot of people in there that were willing to talk on the record. There's a lot of names, a lot of voices and personalities that come through. Um, so if you're an NBA fan, if you're familiar with my work at, at BR, and um, if you like kind of the, the juicier side of, of the details of the league, like there, there's a lot in there that um, I think a lot of fans would get a hold of. Um, and the, to answer your question, um, I wrote this in the book, the opening intro section, you know, I definitely was I entered the the NBA media space definitely through a Sixers lens because of my background. Um, but when I was at Liberty Ballers Freshman Nation, like covering that that process era, like I realized it was a moment that kind of transcended basketball, being that it was at the it was kind of at the the, the, the crossroads of. Um, or just the, the moment in our culture where tech was really starting to infiltrate all um, 
all industries and all aspects of culture. And that's honestly the biggest, one of the bigger themes and motifs throughout the book is the, the influence of analytics in MBA front offices was kind of the birth of this tanking era. And, and then I was in school at Northeastern in Boston where I, you know, I interned for Slam Magazine and I was up at TD Garden with a Slam credential around my neck. And the Celtics people forget, you know, traded KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn the same night that Hinky traded Drew Holiday to New Orleans. Um, and Orlando was attached to those teams, being that um, the Magic were in a 14 deal with the Sixers to, to offload Andrew Bynum or to offload Dwight Howard in the deal that brought Andrew Bynum. That's how the Magic started tanking. And Phoenix was there with Steve Nash. And, and the Suns moving Nash to the Lakers, and the, and the Lakers were reeling from that Kobe, Nash, uh, Dwight, Powell, Gasol team falling apart. And, like, all those teams were kind of tanking at the same time as the analytics really being brought to the forefront that were suggesting, like, to build a team like Miami that was running the league at the time with LeBron, Wade, and Bosch. You had to get those all-stars, and they're most easily attained in that top five of the draft in that 2014 class with Embiid at the top. You know, was considered to be the next 2003 type team. So that 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 was the motivation to to cover that really in a book form, and it also was just a great way to kind of put a bow on my first eight years of my career. Okay, and how was it? I mean, that from somebody who was interning at Slam, that has to be pretty cool. I mean, being able to interview again, I don't want to spoil anything for those who haven't read the book yet, but you have some big heavy hitters that you interviewed in there. So, I mean, how was that experience? Reporting the book or interning at Slam? How was the experience of just interviewing, you know, that 300 people that, you know, we've been talking about? Yeah. Um, so when I got to Sports Illustrated at the time, um, Pete Thamel was their lead college football writer. And he was always someone that had been a good mentor and friend to me. and he told me, you know, there, I should always be working on something big. Like, there should always be some like big idea in the back of your head, whether it's a story that, I, I mean, at the time he meant like work, like reporting a story over three to four months that really, you know, when you drop that feature, it definitely, you know, it's going to take over Twitter for a day or two. Um, so I, I was doing that. And then ultimately at one point I just realized, you know, I should just write a book. Like I should be working on a book on the side rather than, you know, instead of four big stories a year, in addition to the other stuff I was doing at Sports Illustrated, like, why not just work on a book? So the only real difference between the book reporting and the feature stuff was that I had more time to do it and you could cast a bigger net and you could talk to more and more people. Um, but to get in those moments, like there's been I had a lot of experience in trying to book an interview with someone for two months and they finally say yes. And then you go do it. And it feels like you just won a lottery, you know? Um, yeah. So there wasn't really too much difference in the process. It just, it just took longer. And um, I was able to cover more ideas and think more big picture and really get more juicy info because um, I was able to spend more time on it. Okay. Before Jake and I continue, listeners, please take a moment to follow at EthosFantasyBK on Twitter, the single most dominant basketball and fantasy newsfeed on earth. Get all your NBA news in one handy Twitter feed. It's faster than the competition and provides more analysis too. Again, that's at EthosFantasyBK on Twitter. Follow now. Okay, and 
for those of you, again, as you guys know, I'm a Sixers fan, and the biggest Sixers podcast around is the Right Tricky Sanchez podcast. And in preparation for this pod, I went back and listened to Jake, who was on there with Spike and Mike. Spike and Mike also were two guys that he interviewed for the book. And they're kind of the two forefathers of praising Hinky and what he's done with the Sixers as, you know, the process was starting. So I guess where I'm going with this is you mentioned on there the dynamic of like a big market tanking versus small market. So Philadelphia is the fourth biggest media market in the NBA. So why has, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, why hasn't Adam Silver, he, you know, he made the Sixers, or not made the Sixers, but he had the Sixers fire Hinky and bring in Colangelo, who then hired his son. So, I mean, wh- why don't we see those penalties being accrued on a team like OKC rather than the Sixers? Is it because the Sixers were more of a bigger headline because they were a bigger market? Or, or just why do you think – it? Is, is Am I on the right track with the big market versus small market dynamic, or do you think it's just the league has adapted to tanking overall? You're definitely on the right track. Um, and I think in particular, the Sixers are not just a big market team. They're viewed by the league as one of the banner franchises, right, where they've got like the third most NBA playoff appearance games, and they've won a couple of titles, and they have the Dr. J golden era with Moses Malone, and then they had AI in the 2000s. Um, it's considered to be a proud franchise that's been that, been around forever and dates back to the Syracuse Nationals and all that stuff. Um, and the fact that they were supposed to be a revenue-sharing team also is, is a bigger issue. With the Thunder, you know, no one's expecting the Thunder is going to print money every year and line other teams' pockets. But, like, the Oakley season Sacramento's of the world are definitely hoping that, that New York can – add into that taxpayer sharing system. And also, you know, when the Sixers go to town, when they go play um, in OKC or Sacramento or Milwaukee or Memphis, you know, they, they carry that, let's see, your name versus like the Memphis Grizzlies coming to town. Now it's a little bit different because of John Morant, right? And that's a bigger, that, that's the perfect argument for tanking as well. Um, you know, other team, other owners were complaining to Adam Silver. You know, the Sixers are supposed to be a, a box office team that that brings revenue into the gate um, for those smaller markets. So, yeah, it's definitely a double standard. But I will tell you, you know, people on the league definitely ask me all the time, when are they gonna, when's the NBA gonna care about what's happening in OKC? I don't know. I don't have that answer, but I am curious to see if we ever do get to a point. Yeah, and again, there's a lot of benefits to being. A big market, as we see in the NBA, like guys are more likely to go to the go to you in a buyout market, especially if you're competitive, or guys are more likely to sign in free agency. And we see a lot of small markets, they need to trade for stalls. And again, that goes into tanking on why you tank to begin with, because you want to, if you're a smaller market, that's the only way you could really get superstars. So, but again, the negative to being a big market at this point is what we see Adam Silver come down harder on the Sixers than a team like OKC. So the next thing I want to talk about is the lottery reform. So it was implemented, I believe, when? In 2018? It was the first year was the 2019 draft. Okay. So the, the Zion draft was the first year that the rules impacted. So 
how, how do you think, because as I said, this is kind of the golden age for tanking at this point. And if anything, I know teams at the very bottom are less inclined to tank with the lottery reform. Now, you know, the bottom three teams all have equivalence chances at the number one pick and less of a chance than having a top three pick than they've had before. But at the same time, Teams like we saw with Toronto last year, where they had a one-year tank and their odds increased on getting a top four pick, and they ended up landing Scotty Barnes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you think the lottery reform is doing what it's supposed to be doing? Because I still see teams tanking. I mean, we see Houston, we see OKC, we see Detroit, Orlando. As I said, Toronto we saw do it last year for a one-year mini tank. So, I mean, is one? What do you think the purpose of the lottery reform was was it really just to prevent tanking or do you think that and my second question is do you think that it's working there's definitely like a notion that there's less teams obviously tanking right now like there really only are four five ish that the pacer is now I think it's important to consider that the, the introduction of the play-in tournament is the other aspect of this, and that has had a far bigger impact on the league, the play-in tournament, than the changes to the lottery reform, being that we're seeing teams like Sacramento and New Orleans, who right now are in line for one, two, three, four, the six and the seventh picks in the draft right now. And they just they make it now moves at the deadline. Exactly. So the play-in tournament has had far more of an impact um, on uh, on teams trying to win games versus the lottery reform. But the league views and and to, to part to part and answer part of your question, like they wanted to make a statement and do something that like ostensibly curtailed teams' efforts to do it. Um, and it's definitely harder. You know, the the odds speak for itself. Like instead of the first, the worst team having a 25% chance and the second worst team having like a 19.9 and so on, like the bottom three teams only have a 14.5 or 14, a 14% chance, excuse me. And the fourth worst team now is down to 12.5. Like that's a, that's way less than a coin flip, right? That is, you know, minuscule odds. Um, and I think it will create more, like the Raptors jumping up to four to get Scotty Barnes and you know the Grizzlies and the Pelicans when they jumped up to win it in 2019 like it's going to create more variants of outcomes which I think will continue to be random and exciting for the league um but I don't necessarily would say like it's just worked I think teams are still going to tank if they're going to tank because like it's still better to have a top six pick even if you don't get number one than it is to be in 14 or 15, like as a, as a play-in tournament team or a team that's the eighth seed that gets knocked out in the first round. Like there's clear value. If you're not, if you're just going to be lunch meat for the juggernauts in the first round, um, there's clear value and instead bottoming out. Like Portland fans want the Blazers to lose games right now, right? Yeah. Okay. So you bring up Portland, and they're actually my next talking points. There you go. Well, I mean, basically what I'm trying to get at is that there's different ways to tank, like especially with this new lottery reform. 
We we see teams like OKC and Houston really bottoming out. Houston, you know, they're sitting John Wall out for the season because who, who knows why? Because he's actively could help them win because he's not in the long term plans and they'd rather play the young guys. Either way, it has to do with, you know, them ultimately developing young talent and getting better draft odds. So we see a team like Indiana and leading up to the deadline, I always said, I don't see Indiana trading all three of Turner, Sabonis, and Levert, just because Indiana's never been a team to really tank previously. I mean, aside from Paul George at the 10th pick, they haven't had a top 10 pick since I believe it was 1989, something ridiculous like that. So but I say that to basically say Indiana's not a type of organization to bottom out. But now all of a sudden they got a Tyrese Halliburton who, I don't know how you feel about him. I'm not sure if you're able to express thoughts on specific players or not, but I think Halliburton is a center of a rebuild. So all of a sudden that Pacers, you pair Halliburton with this sixth pick in the draft with all of a sudden whatever you get for Brogdon in a trade in addition to whatever you could get for Miles Turner in a trade if they decide to take that route. And then all of a sudden the Pacers rebuild is well underway a year into it. So basically I'm just, I'm saying that too. And then again, as you said, Memphis got lottery luck where they traded Marcus All, then they traded Mike Conley, and then that same year they got the number two pick and landed John Morant. Actually, they landed John Morant before they even traded Mike Conley officially. They traded Mike Conley that summer after they got the number two pick. So basically what I'm trying to get at is that there's different <laughs> ways to tank. Yeah. And we see Portland. Where do you think Portland's going? I mean, because now all of a sudden, if the Pelicans don't make the playoffs – they're getting the Pelicans pick on top of their own, which I know they ended the uh, before the All-Star break, they ended 4-0 with this revamped group. But I still, you know, I don't think that's sustainable, and I don't think many people think that's sustainable. So, I mean, do you see a, a team like Portland trading Dame? And I guess where I'm going with that is, what about Washington with Bradley Beal's upcoming free agency? Do you think those are the next two teams most likely to really blow it up and tear it down to the studs? Or what, where do you think those those two franchises specifically, where they're headed? Well, I think the Pacers are more of a rebuilding situation than, um, than Portland. Um, and the Pacers, I don't think they want to rebuild for long. Um, I think what they're looking to do is I mean both situations want to get back to the playoffs sooner rather than later. Um the Pacers is more from an ownership level in terms of wanting to get playoff revenue. I think the Blazers more from a, a position of wanting to keep Dana Lillard and keep him happy. Um the Pacers I think they kept Miles Turner, right? They didn't if, if they had traded him, I think that would have clearly shown they were more taking a, a turn towards its perennial, you know, lottery team, but they've got Rick Carlisle as head coach, still have Turner and Malcolm Brogdon, and you add in Tyrese Halliburton, and they should have a top five pick this year, and they really like Chris Duarte. Like, they're going to try to get back in the playoff picture next season. The Blazers are the same thing. I mean, they're going to try to be a, be a player in for agency, and they're going to look to move, try to acquire Jeremy Grant. Um, I, I still believe that will happen this summer. So, um there's definitely going to be uh, a lot of moves, I think, that those two teams do with the eye of getting better now. Um, I don't really see them turning into 
tanking or perennial uh, rebuilding type situations. Okay. And yeah, you mentioned Portland, but and Portland does have a very large traded player exception from the CJ McCollum and Larry Nance to the Pelicans trade. So I I envision, as you said, something like Jeremy Grant. Um, but again, they wouldn't really be able to be players in free. It makes more sense for them, actually. Again, you could correct me if I'm wrong, to operate as an over-the-cap team so they get access to the full mid-level and that traded player exception if there's a guy like Jeremy Grant that they could trade for. Um, I, I don't believe that you could use a traded player exception when you're a cap space team, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Okay. Um, and I don't think, you know, I don't think they're going to be able to acquire a really good player just through a trade exception too, because you can't send out talent in that regard. And the, the yeah. Pistons had a pretty high asking price for Jeremy Grant. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm thinking something that it's probably too high, but I'm thinking like the Pelicans pick for Jeremy Grant. But again, that, that, that's a high asking price the Pistons would have. And I just, I don't know if the Trailblazers are going to be willing to meet that. Yeah, I mean, clearly no team was really willing to reach the Pistons' asking price, or the Pistons didn't think any team's offer had met met their price, um, which is why he's still in Detroit right now. So we'll see if that can change um, you know, sometime around the draft before free agency starts. Yeah, and um, Jeremy Grant might also he's, – he's not might. He definitely is going to be asking who, whichever team trades for him. He's extension eligible this summer. He's eligible yes. for a four-year, $112 million um, contract. So Portland might – it looks like they, you know, they cleared up the cap space. All of a sudden, they might be the team that could be willing to offer him that. Like a team like Chicago, there was speculation he could go to. Those teams are already so – have so much money committed, they can't commit to that kind of – extension so yeah that that's definitely why pull then comes to mind for me so hey real quick we have a brand new daily fantasy partner at sports ethos thrive fantasy pop up with thrive fantasy on the mobile app or at thrivefantasy.com use code ethos when you sign up to get a hundred percent deposit match bonus on your first deposit up to a hundred bucks plus either two or four free game tickets to play pick player props on the biggest names playing every night score points when your props hit and the players with the most points win a show of the nightly prize money Check out our Sports Ethos DFS team or podcast for advice on winners. Again, that is code ethos over at thrivefantasy.com. So, okay, it looks like my dog from the other room is barking. But, <laughs> okay. Um, and then I want to bring up something you mentioned regarding the process in Built to Lose, regarding Thaddeus Young, and essentially Hinky holding out for a first-round pick in uh-huh. order to get him. And again, I, I I don't want to spoil anything in your book. I recommend to every listener to go read it. Spoil it, spoil it. There's there's so much in there. If you spoil something, trust me, there's still more. Okay. Well, basically, you talk about how Thaddeus Young feels like he wasted a year of his career by being stuck on the, on the Process Sixers roster. And, you know, Hinky held out until he got a first-round pick, which he inevitably did. And the, I believe it was the Kevin Love to the Cavs trade where Thaddeus Young went to Minnesota. Yes. So it just – it reminded me of – you know, I related back to present day, and it reminded me of what Daryl Morey did with Ben Simmons in the aspect of, sure, Ben, obviously, he wasn't holding out for a first-round pick, but he was holding out until he got exactly what he wanted 
because he knew the championship window with Embiid might be so short, and the window is open now, so he needs to maximize that. So, basically, I, I just wanted to talk about this, because whether you're tanking, whether you're contending, it's GMing 101 to, you know, you value your asset this way, you need to get this sort of asset for that player. Yeah. So, I, I mean, is there anything further on that that you want to elaborate on or just that, you know, that's that's GMs knowing the value of the player and that's where that's how it is. And again, I, I, I guess where I'm going is Daryl Morey, he held out up until he got James Harden. People were telling him to take offers for Harrison Barnes, for Jeremy Grant, just to get Ben Simmons off the team and, you know, give Embiid something. Because right now we're the three seed without Ben playing a game for us this year and without Harden playing yet. So, do yeah, you- I think I think, you know, the, the NBA ecosystem is small. There's only 30 teams. So you can look at that as being that it's small. So there's not many options to make a deal. Or you can look at it as small and say, well, other people don't have as many options to make a deal either. And it's a controlled environment where you're going to be dealing with those same people over and over and over again, right? I mean, look at Boston or Brad Stevens, for example. The fact that they've made several trades and that they've been they've made several trades with the Spurs, like clearly that's that's a that's not a coincidence. Clearly, Brad Stevens has some connection with San Antonio, um, and they've worked well together. So, you know, if you're in that, that, that small, finite marketplace, you're establishing that you are going to be a tough negotiator, like, that's only going to benefit you in the long run. If you are in deals with you're talking with teams saying the Rockets saying we want a first round pick for Eric Gordon and then you ultimately trade him for two seconds like next time you come back around and ask for a first round pick like why is someone going to give you a first round pick that they know you're just going to drop down to two seconds versus the Pacers were saying how much they were how much they were going to take for Kyra Savert and they wouldn't drop their price and the Pacers the Cavs ended up paying more than they told anyone else they'd be willing to pay so you're right. There are clear benefits to holding out for your price. And again, now that you mention, you know, oh, Eric Gordon's going for a first-hand chain for two seconds, teams kind of call your bluff next time, as you're saying. I'm thinking of, is that kind of what happened with Orlando, with Terrence Ross, in the aspect of, oh, they traded Evan Fournier for two seconds last year. Now, this time around, they're asking a first for Terrence Ross. So teams are probably saying, oh, well, I'm only going to give you two seconds because that's what you traded Fournier for last year. So is, is that a similar type thing that you're referring to? Yeah. yeah, I would say so. And the one last thing I wanted to add in was that you're saying, yeah, there's only 30 teams. Teams negotiate with each other frequently. There's also, you know, it's a marketplace. So a lot of people were speculating before DeMontis Sabonis got traded. That's the asking price is going to be what Nikola Vucevic went for last year. So you you could kind of compare to previous trades. Okay, well, I know DeMontis Sabonis is worth at least a young player and two first because that's what Nikola Vucevic went for. They're both two-time All-Stars and Sabonis is five years younger, so Sabonis might go for even more. And I personally think he did. I think Tyrese Halliburton is a franchise centerpiece. 
But, yeah, I wouldn't say that was even speculation. Like, that was just what I heard the Pacers were even asking for. Like, they were telling teams we need a Vucevic type all. And that marketplace aspect is, is what you're saying. Like, um, um, teams use that for, and agents use recently signed contracts as contacts for their players' contracts, right? So, um, that, that marketplace being full of precedents for future deals is, is certainly accurate. Okay. And then the last few things I want to bring up is I know you said, you know, you don't advocate that you used to be a Sixers fan, but <laughs> without those glass, without those rose colored glasses on just as an NBA insider and reporter for Bleacher Reports, do you think the process worked is my first question. And my second question is, is tanking a viable strategy? Well, I mean, I definitely think the process worked, being that Joel Embiid is a perennial MVP candidate, and they were the number one seed in the East last year, and they clearly have a title window where from 2019 with that loss to the Toronto Raptors till now, they've been knocking on the door of the championship. And look at teams like Sacramento, who haven't made the playoffs in 16 years, or teams like Minnesota, who made it once and haven't been back after a decade out. Um there's just been, um, I mean, there's been so many teams that haven't gotten to that level of having a fighting shot every year. I mean, to say your championship or bust is honestly kind of bullshit, being that, like, no one can really guarantee a title. As much as Golden State and Cleveland were going to the finals year after year after year, like, both those teams almost, I mean, maybe not really Cleveland, but... Um, both those teams had scares, you know, a couple of game sevens here and there. It's not guaranteed. And if you're right there, like, you never know. You could be Milwaukee last year, or Toronto in 2019, or the Mavericks in 2011. And the fact that the Sixers are there every single year now, they haven't gotten the conference finals, but they got a real fighting shot every year. It's way more to be said than where they were in the post-Allen Iris and Andre Godala era, where they were just first-round lunch meet. And getting, I mean, sure, they made the conference finals one season, but, you know, no one really was believing that team was a true, um, a true finals. Uh, or no, they did make the conference finals. They made the semifinals, right? They were in game seven to make the conference finals. Yeah, against um, Boston when they were against the- Boston. Yeah. So no one really thought that that team was, was anything more than that, a second round team at best. So the fact that this team's got the ceiling of, of a title contender. Clearly think it was worth it. And my second question is, I know we've been talking about tanking this whole episode. So I guess I'll broaden my question a little bit because basically is tanking viable strategy. I think any intelligence, well, not any intelligent because those people that, you know, don't think that losing intentionally, which I don't think any tanking team loses intentionally. They just don't, you know, give the pieces that are going to win many games. So is tanking, I guess, I guess I want to go back to the big market, small market dynamic. Is it easier to tank when you're in a bigger market because you're going to have the fan base? Like, I don't think the Sixers attendance went down all that much during the tanking years. I, oh, I don't it know. definitely did. It definitely did. They were selling okay. tickets for 76 cents on StubHub at one point. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, though, 
a bigger market like Philadelphia was able to afford tanking and the three years. People make it seem like the process, you know, was an eight-year thing where they were winning 10 games each year. It was a three-year real a real tank for three years, and they only had the worst record in the league one of those years. So, again, I know they didn't meet the 20-game threshold any of those seasons, so I might be um, making it seem better than it actually was. It was a, most, the losingest three years in sports history at one point, but, yeah. and the longest losing streak in one point. But basically, um, again, back to like OKC, how long do you think a team like OKC can actually tank because of the fact that they're a small market, as opposed to the city of Philadelphia, who was able to afford it more? I mean, I think they'll be able to get away with it forever. Look at the Kings. They, they haven't necessarily intentionally been bad, but haven't seen Adam Silver come into play with management in Sacramento at all, right? So um, I, I don't know if there really is a limit to it. If you're out of the spotlight, it seems like you might be able to get away with it for a long, long time. And do you think that's why the six – again, I think this is kind of going back on what we talked about earlier. Is that why you think the Sixers, why they were penalized? Well, not penalized, but, you know, they hinky had – No, I, I, as, I, as I wrote in the book um, – there clearly was, um, there clearly was pressure by on Silver. Um, there clearly was pressure on Silver from owners and from other people in the league that the way that, that Philly was doing it, the transparency that they were doing it, and that they weren't speaking publicly about it. That was the perfect storm against Sam Hinkie to get him pushed out. They wanted someone who, I mean. Sam Price is doing the same stuff, and he only really speaks twice a year. But yeah, the attention on Philly, the fact that it was so brazen and such a it was it was a, it was a leading topic in on sports. And I mean, no one's talking about the Thunder, so the league doesn't really care. And do you think that you know Sam Presti? He obviously has job security more than just about any other executive in the league. Do you think that plays into it? The fact that he knows, okay, I could see this rebuild through without having to lose my job because a lot of GMs don't have that luxury of, you know, being able to even consider tanking because they know they won't be able to see it through because they won't be there long enough. Yeah. It's something that every team talks about. How long do we have? Um, And typically it's two, three years. So do you want to commit to a two, three-year window and, and, and give yourself that clock. But also sometimes, you know, the Orlando Magic got to extend their lifeline by two, three years by opting for a rebuild after being there for four or five seasons. So there are there are even merits to that using tanking can, can be a form of job security. Yeah, and th- again, you talk a little bit about Boston rebuilding in the book. Well, not a, more than a little bit, but... Basically, how how does Boston fare in compared to like a team like the Sixers? They were bad. Boston never had to bottom out. They just made a genius trade, trading Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett for these picks and pick swaps that turned into Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So, I mean, you I guess if you have a savvy GM, that's just again back to my initial note of there's different ways to tank. So, right before we sign off, quickly. 
I just want to remind you guys to use coupon code HoopBall20 at Manscaped.com for 20% off your order and free shipping. Also, check it out, pals, at MyBookie.ag. Use code HoopBall on the third page of sign-up to unlock deposit match bonuses there as well. So, Jake, thank you so much for coming on. Everyone read his work at, um, at Bleacher Report. Everyone go read Built to Lose. It is by far – I'm not a big reader, but it is by far my favorite <laughs> book I've ever read. So, Jake, wow. thank, you, thank you so much for coming on, and – we will talk to you guys next episode. Yeah, thank you so much for that, man. That's really, really kind of you to, to, to share. And thank you for giving me the platform to talk about it. They didn't want to go into the penalty of the luxury tax. They traded James Harden. Somebody's going to be making $50 million a year. He probably could have made a little bit more money this summer in free agency. I think agency. he could have got a lot more in the offseason. Uh-huh. You got a chance to secure the bag. You got to secure it, man. No question. Yeah.